coming back to our study in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, and um, being that we've been so far or long away from uh, our last study, uh, there'll be a little bit of review, but not too much, but we, uh, uh, we hope and pray that uh, your hearts will jump right back into what we have been studying uh, previously. So, as we do every Sunday, we're going to read a portion of this passage. I've actually included a couple of verses from last time uh, for, for the sake of context. And then we're going to read down through verse 11 and study down through verse 11 this morning. So, uh, if you are able, please stand with me and let us read God's Word together. <clears throat> Acts chapter 18. We're going to begin reading in verse 5, and then read down through verse 11. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we are thankful and blessed to be able to read openly and freely and loudly and robustly your word. For indeed, Lord God, it is our desire that your word would not only be written upon our hearts, but proclaimed through our mouths and through our lips. We are thankful, Lord, for the outpouring and the blessing of your Holy Spirit, that you give us each time we come to your word. We pray that you will give us wisdom and understanding and insight into the truths of your word so that they might be lived out in our lives until that day when Jesus comes again. And we are thankful, Father, for the precious blessing of the study of your word. May you continue, Lord God, to grow us in love and mercy, grace, and especially Grow us in your truth, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. When you consider what it took to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ through time, territories, and trials to get to where it is today, when you think of the numbers of witnesses who gave of their own lifeblood 
for the propagation and transmission of the good news of salvation through the person and work of Jesus. And when you ponder the the enormity of its life-changing effects upon the hearts of billions of men and women through centuries of time over nearly all the earth, it makes you wonder about the opposition that it faces in our day and age. An opposition that cares nothing about the gospel's significant history and and, uh, affirmative consequence upon societies in general and, and our own culture in particular. Case in point, I think it's probably appropriate in the season that we're in, but an article entitled Jesus versus the Atheists, written by Bill O'Reilly for townhall.com, summarizes for us today's antagonism and hostility toward the Christian faith. He writes, Just in time for the Christmas season, Washington State Governor Christine Gregoire has insulted Christians all over the world. Inside the state capitol building in Olympia, there is a traditional holiday display featuring a tree and the nativity scene, perfectly appropriate since the federal and state Christmas holiday celebrates the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. But this year, Gregoire decided to add another item to the display. Standing alongside the baby Jesus is a giant placard designed by atheists that reads, and I quote, There are no gods, no devils, no angels, no heaven or hell. There is only our natural world. Religion is but myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. End quote. You read that correctly. The governor of Washington state has permitted an attack on religion to be displayed in her office building as part of a Christmas presentation. Well, after mentioning more secular progressive nuttiness by the far-left zealots and pockets of that state, particularly uh, and especially in Seattle, where there is, by the way, an allowance of public nakedness in city parks and nude bike riding, just to mention a few things, And in the suburb of Seattle, where a statue honoring Vladimir Lenin, the father of communism, stands, O'Reilly ends his piece with the question, where are the wise men when you need them? I bring this up because there is this issue of the existence of God a debate that has been going on for centuries. And um, in our day and time, uh, we we see the popularity now of of atheism. Uh, But atheism has been around a long time. But in the midst of of the philosophical debates, you know, there, there is today no rational philosophical debate as there would have been in times past about this issue. Skeptics such as Immanuel Kant and David Hume, Rousseau and Voltaire and others, uh, though their theological and biblical understanding was quite flawed, nonetheless had somewhat of a working knowledge of the Bible. Voltaire, for example, 
wrote these words. He says, what is faith? Is it to believe that which is evident? No, it is perfectly evident to my mind that there, ex- that there exists a natural, uh, or I'm sorry, a, ne- a necessary, eternal, supreme, and intelligent being. So even Voltaire himself, who, who battled the Christian faith, said that he believed that there was a, uh, an eternal, supreme being. He says this is no matter of faith, but of reason. So you see how his mind was flawed in that. But then you have to consider that he was also critical of other religions, especially of Muhammad and Islam. And, and uh, that then was, was uh, how they viewed the whole picture. It was a, a stand philosophically against religion in general. Sometimes Christianity because it was the main religion of, of the time or of, of the nation that they were in. But today's atheists, today's atheists, for example, men like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens have written, uh, for example, uh, the books The God Delusion and uh, I forget the title of Hitchens' book, but uh, uh, nonetheless, they don't argue philosophically rational positions. Now, I say that because they offer philosophically rational positions, but they don't make any sense to philosophers. It comes down to this. They hate Christianity. And their attack isn't against religion. It is against Christianity and Christ. Bottom line. It is an attack against Christianity solely and hostily. In other words, with hostility. But what would happen to them should they aim their attacks as virulently against Islam as they do Christianity. You'll notice that they don't. Why? Because then there would be a price on their heads, you see. It's okay to attack Christianity. Nobody's going to come and kill us out of that particular group. But, uh, you know, if I say anything against Islam. And they don't. You see, it is a very targeted attack. Now, why do I bring this up? Because this is the opposition that we face in our day and time. And we're going to eventually run into people that probably read these books and think, well, you know, we, 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 we don't really believe in God anymore. That becomes our opposition in our day and time. And we need to be encouraged about our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the credibility of the Word of God, and the credibility of, of, of the Scriptures, the infallibility of the Scriptures, and so on and so forth. So I bring that up, and we'll tie this all together with what's going on with Paul, because what was the Apostle Paul facing in his time? You see, when we last saw Paul, he had just arrived alone in Corinth. After having been in Athens, what was he doing in Athens? He was debating the philosophers. He was debating the Epicureans and the Stoics on Mars Hill. Timothy and Silas having stayed in Macedonia to teach and to encourage the churches there. And remember that Corinth itself had its own problems. Certainly it was famous for, for, for several things, aside from the fact that it was known for its bronze and its pottery works and its great sporting events that were comparable to the Olympics. Corinth was known for three things. It always begins with the letter C to correspond with Corinth. First of all, it was cosmopolitan. Secondly, it was commercial. And thirdly, and most importantly, it was corrupt. It was a corrupt city. It was a, a city of great immorality and a great, a great wickedness. And it wasn't an immorality that was hidden. It was out in the open for everyone to see. And Paul arrives there after, after having been through a great number of difficulties. 
even having been stoned and left for dead in Lystra. Meager results in Athens being alone and with a lack of funds. And this, of course, leads him to use his tent-making skills, as we saw in the first part of, of chapter 18, which, which brings him into contact with a couple named Achilla and Priscilla, who become companions in the work of establishing the church in Corinth. And they themselves would later accompany Paul to Ephesus. But in Corinth, in Corinth, Paul, as was his, comf- as was his custom, always began in the synagogue. He always went to the Jews first. Just as he had written to the Romans, to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentile. So as was his custom, he began in the synagogue, but that witness in Corinth lasted but a short time. I point you to verses 4 through 6 of our text. It says, and he reasoned, this is chapter 18, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. That being compelled by the Spirit was was also connected very much by Silas and Timothy's arrival there. They came not only in support of him and in prayerful support of him, but they also brought support from Macedonia so that he could, with all of his heart, preach the gospel to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, and by the way, the blasphemy was toward Paul. When they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments, and he said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. In other words, it's not going to be upon me, because I have presented to you the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have presented to you the truth that Jesus is indeed the Jewish Messiah. So for you to reject that, that clear presentation from the Scriptures, then your blood is on your own head. He says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And that very thought at the end, that he's going to go to the Gentiles, was not so much a new thought for Paul, since he had faced this opposition from his own people previously and, and, and really often. We see in Acts 13, if you'll go back to Acts 13 just for a point of review here, but in Acts chapter 13, verses 42 through 48, there in Antioch of Pisidia, not Syria, but in Pisidia, after, you know, this was in their first missionary journey. Verse 42 says, So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. The Gentiles were interested in what Paul was preaching about Jesus. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. And they didn't even need the internet, and they didn't need TV and advertising, man. They just went out and told everybody, we need you to come and hear this message. And almost the whole city came to hear the word of God. The Gentiles were hungry, you see. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and they said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So you see, it's not a new thought. 
He says, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. (laughs) So as we arrive now at our text today, Paul has evidently moved out of Achilla and Priscilla's home in preparation of establishing a new church in Corinth. And he leaves the synagogue and he travels but a short distance. You know how far he traveled? He went next door. Because that's what our text says in verse 7. And he departed from there, the synagogue, and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God. Stop there for a moment and remember... Justice was a Roman. As a matter of fact, he had three names. I'll talk about that in a moment. But he was a Roman who worshipped God. And if you remember in our, uh, in our continuing study of the book of Acts, that we've run into people who were Gentiles who worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were interested in this one God of the Jews. And so they worshipped the God of the Jews But they didn't know much about Jesus at that point. So he was a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. The King James Version tells us it was like plaster right next to it. So we know that it was next door. So you might think then that it was better for the sake of peace for Paul to move across town. Well, the Jews don't want me here, so I'm going to go the other side of town. I'll do my own work. I'll do my own thing. But uh, you see, we must always remember that, that Paul was ever sensitive, first of all, to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And yet for a moment think that nothing could be more calculated to annoy the Jews and to provoke them to jealousy than to establish a church next door to the synagogue. And this isn't a weird thing. Because you see, Paul would later write to the Romans in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, and he would tell them, I say then, have they, the Jews, stumbled that they should fall? And remember, what Paul writes in, in chapters 9 through 11 in Romans, he writes because of his love for the Jewish people, because he's Jewish, and his desire for them to be saved. So he writes, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And he says, God forbid, certainly not, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So, in essence, to move away from the, from the synagogue would have shown more of a contempt than a love for them. And he stays there, right next door. And I'm sure that they all really like their new neighbors, right? And the person who lived next door to the synagogue is significant too. I mentioned Justice, whose, whose full Roman name was Gaius Titius Justice. And he could probably be identified in two of Paul's letters. First of all, in Romans 16.23, under the name of Gaius, which would have been his, his more personal, close name, you know, uh, personal name, I should say. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church. Now, understand, Paul writes to the Romans from Corinth. So he says, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. So most scholars believe and, 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 and commentators believe that this Gaius is the same justice who actually was the host and that's where the church began. 
And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, as he now writes back to the Corinthians, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And again, this would have referred to this man named Justice, who has now come to know Christ and was baptized, one of the few people baptized by the Apostle Paul. And there in 1 Corinthians 1.14, we meet another person whose name is Crispus. And, and we see that name in verse 8 of our text. So in verse 8 of Acts 18, it says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. Interesting. This Crispus, is probably believe that that name is, is, is a, a, a Roman name, yet he's a Jew. The ruler of the synagogue. King James Version says, the chief ruler of the synagogue. Believed on the Lord with all his household. So the ruler of the synagogue himself, after Paul has preached the gospel, now believes the gospel and believes in Jesus Christ. And it says that many of the Corinthians, hearing believed and were baptized, both Jew and Gentile. Not as many Jews, but, but many Gentiles. And this was an exciting turn of events now. That the ruler of the synagogue has come to know Jesus Christ. By the way, the responsibility of the ruler of the synagogue is, 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 was a great responsibility. Um, this, this Crispus was, was, was responsible of taking charge of all of the building, all of the synagogue itself, and also of making all the arrangements for the services in the synagogue. So he had a tremendously important role in the synagogue. But he became a believer in Jesus Christ. And not only he, but his family as well, because it talks of his whole house. That would include his family and his servants and all. They have now come to Christ. And um, when you look at verse 17, and of course we'll look at this next week in more detail, but in verse 17 uh, we read that a person named Sosthenes was ruler now of the synagogue. And the question is, well, does that mean that uh, Sosthenes took over for Crispus when he became a Christian? Probably so. Crispus was probably released from his position as ruler of the synagogue, and now Sosthenes is the new ruler of the synagogue. And we're told that Sosthenes here uh, uh, takes over. And, and so it just indicates something that's really important for all of us to understand, even in our day and time, and that is that Christmas probably had to resign immediately after declaring faith in Christ. Which teaches us that there can be a cost to following Jesus. There can be a cost. And uh, I, I know I've, I've spoken to many people who you know, have come to Christ and, and, and they try to share their faith where they work or whatever. And there seems to have been a built up hostility. There wasn't a hostility before, but now when Christ is mentioned, mm, you know... Things get a little different. may not be as bad as it was in, in Paul's time, but nonetheless, it, it does show that there's a cost to our discipleship. And in some cases, it can cost us our position, it can cost us our status, it can cost us our standing, whether in our jobs or in, even in our communities. Take, for example, the entertainment industry in Hollywood. You know, we've, we've oftentimes heard of a blacklist, you know, uh, the blacklisting of people in, in Hollywood back in the 50s because of, of, of a hunt for communists, not only within the entertainment industry, but especially in the government. But today there's a blacklist. There's a blacklist of people that, uh, who, who, who profess faith in Christ that have a hard time getting jobs in the entertainment industry. 
And you begin to wonder, as bad as the entertainment industry is getting, who wants to get jobs there anyway? But you know how God always places people so that there will be a witness for him, even in the worst places. I mean, let's face it, that's where Paul is. Paul was in Corinth. And Corinth was was the, the filth capital of the world. It was the pornography capital of the world in Paul's time. So, here's my statement to you about all that. Ultimately, what does it matter when we who believe in Jesus Christ are now seated in heavenly places with Him and in Him? What does it matter? You see, we need to understand something. Our eternal standing, our eternal position, our eternal place is what's more important where we are with Christ. And we are already set. If we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have already been set in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul said in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. By the way, it's past tense, isn't it? He has blessed us already in the heavenly places in Christ. But then he goes a step further in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, and especially verse 6. But let me read this passage to you. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up. Past tense? Raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Past tense! That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding, I'm sorry, the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a tremendous blessing for you to know? That when you come to Christ, yes, it may cost you. But that's okay. Because we're seated in heavenly places with Christ now. Right now. In Christ. Folks, there's, there's uh, you know, I, I don't want to, like, say it's time to maybe just study the book of Ephesians, and then we'll come back to Acts. But you need to read the book of Ephesians, because there's a common phrase throughout that book. It is the phrase, in Him, in Christ. And more Christians need to read that and believe it, that we are today in Christ. Therefore, how we live, what we say, what we do is so important to this world and to us. And to our eternal destiny. Well, we've got to get back to Acts here. So. And, and, and getting back to Crispus, evidently Crispus' conversion, without a doubt, had a considerable impact on many who, who regularly attended the synagogue, for, for we're told that many of those Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Which should tell us that Paul did not forbid Jews to come to Jesus when he said, Well, I'm just going to go to the Gentiles. He didn't forbid Jews to come to Jesus uh, now that he was taking the gospel somewhat exclusively to the Gentiles. He just switched his focus. But Jews were always welcome to come to their Messiah. In the next section of our text, we see how the Lord came to, commissioned, and comforted Paul 
through some of his fears. Now I want you to remember this little outline about Paul in verses 9 through 11. The Lord came to Paul. The Lord commissioned, actually recommissioned, but commissioned Paul. And then he also comforted Paul. Comforted him through some of his fears. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now it is in this passage of scripture that we find two very important statements made by the Lord to Paul. He says, I am with you. And then he says, I have many people in this city. Now these things were written directly to Paul, but they were written not only to encourage the Apostle Paul, but to encourage us in our mission to bring the hope of salvation to our homes, our families, our neighborhoods, and our city. Remember that for all the encouragement that Paul had received, he was nonetheless fearful and repressed, which means that he was fearful and he was held back. Now we would say, well, that, that can't possibly the apostle, be the Apostle Paul. Yes, it can how many times do I have to tell you that Paul was human? You see? And this is one of those passages that really reveals the humanity of Paul. That Jesus himself has to come to Paul and encourage him and say to him, I'm with you. And don't worry about, you know, being attacked or hurt. Because I have many people in this city. Think about it. Think about what Paul's going through at this time. He had been run out of Thessalonica and Berea. His ministry in Athens was not outwardly successful. Not to mention what he had already experienced in ministry up to that point. And Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 11. And some of the things that we're going to notice here happened actually before he gets to Corinth. Take for example, it says from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one, do the math. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That already happened. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. My goodness, that's a pretty complete list of perils. And these are not the perils of Pauline. They're the perils of Paul. And yet notice what his greatest concern was in verse 28. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. 
And some of those things did happen to him before arriving in Corinth. So what does the Lord have to do with Paul? He has to visit him in the night by a vision, possibly in a dream. But nonetheless, in a way that Paul is going to clearly hear what the Lord has to say to him. And you see, Jesus doesn't waste any words with Paul. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus never wastes any words with us either. But Jesus doesn't waste any words with Paul. Because you see, Jesus doesn't tell someone, do not be afraid, unless they're fearful. Unless they're afraid. Jesus doesn't tell them, speak and don't be silent, unless they're holding back. How succinct and yet how profound are the things that Jesus says to Paul. Don't be afraid, Paul. And don't be silent. Speak. You see, the Lord knows when we're discouraged. The Lord knows when He needs to come to us. A lot of times we don't know. A lot of times we try to figure things out in our own flesh, our own mind. But God knows when He has to come and say, It's enough. I know you're discouraged. I know you're hurt. I know you're holding back because you're afraid. I know you're holding back because you've gone through this so many times and it's hurt. Let me encourage you. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't hold back. Because when you preach, I have many people in this city I already know are going to come. And they're going to come into the kingdom. So you go ahead and preach. Because I already know they're, they're mine. Isn't it wonderful to know a God that already knows the end from the beginning? And the beginning from the end? Which is supposed to be our greatest encouragement, you see. Out of that discouragement of saying, oh Lord, things look like they're always failing. Things look like they're always bad. Things look like I can't get through this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Well, you know what the Lord says, but wait a minute, I'm with you. When did I ever leave you? When did I ever forsake you? He knows when he needs to come to us because he knows the needs of every servant of His. Turn to Psalm 139, one of the most beautiful psalms in the book of Psalms. And David says, Oh Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. I tell you what, that last statement there, 
A lot of times we don't think about some of the things we say. And yet God already knows what, what we're going to say before we say it. And, and that, should, that should remind us, you know, about what we say and how we say it. There's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You know it already. So may I give you a little word of advice? Be careful what you say. Because God already knows what you're going to say. But we know that discouragement can set in at any time. Discouragement can set in at any time. But so does the Lord. The Lord knows that. And He knows how to counter spiritual discouragement. The Lord knows how to counter spiritual discernment. He counters it with a fresh vision of Him, of Himself, and from Him. God brought a fresh vision to Paul. You see, we need that fresh vision. We need that fresh vision from the Lord in our ministering and in our serving because it's too easy to fall into a comfortable place or position. To get into a rut, to get it set into autopilot. God doesn't want any of us to be on autopilot as Christians. A.W. Tozer wrote a great book entitled Rut, Rod, or Revival. Well, it's a series of messages, but it's been put together as a book if you ever get an opportunity. That's a book that every Christian needs in his library. Rut, Rod, or Revival. Because he goes to this, this detailed explanation of how many Christians go, you know, uh, in, get into this routine of, of, of their, in their Christianity, in their Christian walk, in their Christian life. They get into a routine that eventually it turns into a rut. And you know, when you get into a rut, you, you, you kind of just, you know, you get lower and lower because you're just going over the same area over and over. And so you just kind of get lower and lower. And, and he says you go from a routine into a rut and eventually you begin to rot. Because you're going nowhere. And what we need then is revival. The revival of our hearts and knowing that there's a freshness to our relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now we can't be like, there was an old commercial years ago that actually came out of California. Uh, somebody had to remind me last night, it was for Del Taco. How many of you remember Del Taco in California? If you're from California. You know, it was, a, it was a, a bunch of people from an office. They all got together, you know, and they said... They're going to lunch, and they said, same place, same place, same thing, same thing. And they would just go as a group, and they always go to the same place, and same thing, you know. Same place, same place, same thing, same thing, you know. And they were in a rut. So now, go to Del Taco, man, it's better than just a hamburger, you know. That kind of thing. Get out of the rut, you see. But Christians need to get out of these ruts that we place ourselves into. And the thing is that we, we've always done, or the things that we've always done may no longer be infused with the Holy Spirit. That's autopilot. Our prayers are the same. You know, our, our reading, you know, we just read. You know, uh, and, and then we put a clock on it. I've got to read everything by five minutes because I've got to go to work and I've got to go to the... So it's just, you know, it's, it's mechanical. God doesn't want us to be mechanical Christians. We're to have the life of Christ in us. To get out of that rut. So what's that telling us about Paul? Oh, praise the Lord. Paul's not 
Jesus! <laughs> so many people put Paul on a pedestal nearly as, as, as close to, 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 to Jesus as he never made a mistake. Paul was human. We've already talked about that in the book of Acts. So this is a wonderful thing for us to realize that even Paul could get discouraged. And Paul needed to have a fresh vision. And guess what? So do we. So do we. Because when we get into that rut, we've chosen to function on our own strength and on our own intellect and not in His power and in His wisdom. And it's time to come back to that. We need to let the Lord examine us. We need to let the Lord challenge us. And we need to let the Lord change us. Write that down. We need to let the Lord examine us, challenge us, and change us. Unless you have a good memory, write it down. Because that's what our prayers should be today. Lord, examine me. Just like David was saying, Lord, you searched me and you know me. And at the end of that particular same psalm, he says, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and, and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in thy way everlasting. We need to let the Lord examine us, challenge us, and change us. We're never to leave the basics, but we are to do them with renewed vision. Let's not change the basics. Some people are trying to change the basics today. Some people are trying to change what the truth is about the gospel. Oh, listen, we're in a postmodern society, so we've got to change everything. No, we don't change God's word because God doesn't change. We need a change. And we need to be infused once again with the power of the Holy Spirit to get out of these ruts that we find ourselves in. Well, the other encouraging thing that the Lord says to Paul is that he has many people in this city. God knew that there were people in the city of Corinth who would be turning to him. I mean, that's, that's amazing considering how Corinth was known as such a wicked city. The Lord does not want Paul to, to give up his mission and, and his calling. There's a reason why Paul was brought to Corinth. Sure, there was opposition on all sides. Yes, the Jews who, who refused and rejected the message of Messiah. And there were also those steeped in the idolatry and the immorality of the city. But there in Corinth, the filth capital of the world, were many hungry hearts. Just like in El Paso today, many hungry hearts. And notice how similar this statement is about Paul's time and place to our time and place today. Because you see in Corinth, there were lonely people. A lot of lonely people in El Paso. There were people disillusioned by pleasure and worldliness. People who had drunk from Satan's poisoned wells. Desperate people. People who were not only lost, but knew they were lost. There in Corinth were sailors tired of lives of drunkenness and debauchery. There were broken women, the cast-offs of the temples whose sin was their daily bread. 
There were successful businessmen whose money could buy them everything but happiness. There were housewives struggling for a decent home in a city as wicked as Sodom. And there were young people disenchanted, disgusted, and disappointed by the deadness of their gods. But what is the analysis? What is the analysis of hearing that list? The analysis is the field was ripe with harvest. The field was ripe with harvest. These people needed Jesus Christ. There are lonely people here today in our city. There are people who have drunk from Satan's poison wells. There are desperate people. People who are lost and they know it. There are successful people who have everything but happiness and joy. And what's the analysis for us? Folks, the the field is ripe for harvest. And you're the workers of the field. And so the outcome was, the outcome was for Paul, that for the next year and a half, Paul would throw himself fully into evangelism of this great city as well as teaching God's word to the newfound believers and ably supported by Silas and Timothy because now they're with him. And this experience in Corinth was such a turning point that it affected everything that Paul did from this point on. Instead of staying one month here, two weeks there, three months and moving on, Now he stayed longer in places. Here is a year and a half. In Ephesus it would be two years. This was significant. This was different than what he had ever done. All because of this renewed vision. All because Jesus said to him, I'm with you. Because he says, I have many people in this city. Don't be afraid. No one's going to hurt you or harm you. Now, understand this. That was for Paul in Corinth. Later on, of course, he'd be thrown into prison again. He would go even through martyrdom. But for this amount of time, when he needed encouragement, God said, everything's going to be okay. You preach the gospel. You you remember I'm with you. You realize I know that there are people here that are going to come to me. And what's interesting is, if you look at this, uh, the historical uh, church of of, of Corinth, that it lasted a, a good long while, at least that same route, out of that same route, nearly into the ninth century. It's a long time for some of those churches. In conclusion, Paul is comforted. Remember our outline. The Lord came to Paul. The Lord, in essence, has recommissioned Paul. But he came also to comfort him. Paul is comforted and strengthened in the work to remain those 18 months and to remain with boldness. Be bold, Paul. Don't be afraid. Be bold. How can we have that boldness? How can we have that confidence in what God has called us to do? Well, notice what Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. Because here he says, let us therefore come boldly, confidently to the throne of grace, 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us come boldly to the Lord that, that we might obtain this mercy and grace. We, I, I believe that every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ, we would admit to this very thing that we need mercy and grace, right? <laughs> I need mercy and grace every day. But we can come boldly and confidently to God's throne to obtain it. Which means that as we commune with God, as you commune with God, He will give you that boldness. He will give you that confidence. He will give you that assurance because He gives you of His Spirit. He gives you of Himself. And also the Apostle John would tell us in his first letter, 1 John 4, verses 17 through 19. He says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. The same kind of fear that Jesus came to tell Paul about. When he says, do not fear. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Folks, you see, his love toward us expels all fear that may torment us. It's another thing that we as Christians need to come and remember, realize, and believe in. You see how rich the Word of God is? And I wonder sometimes why it is that so many people say, I'm having this problem, I'm having that problem. You know, if you'll take God's Word as food and eat it and believe it and let it come into your life, you have, just, you have every answer to every question you may have in Christ and in His Word. His love towards us expels all that fear that may torment us. And again, it deals with communion with God. It deals with having this fellowship with God and trusting in God. And out of that will come this boldness to stand for God. We'll never get the boldness if we keep our distance from God in prayer, in communion, in fellowship, in devotion, in Bible reading. His love. And may I just point you to the cross. His love expels all fear. And we can love Him because He first loved us. And just to make clear here, there is really one good fear, and that is the fear of the Lord to respect the Lord, to reverence Him, to worship Him, to kiss toward Him with all of our heart. You see, even Paul needed to be awakened to these things. But look at the outcome. Look at what happens. 
what will happen to our city, to our neighborhoods, to our communities, to our schools, to our homes, to our, to our places of employment when we come and say, Lord, renew in me a new vision, a fresh vision, a holy vision. Maybe we need to get away from television for a time so that we can see the true vision that God has for us so that he could use you to win as many people to him, people that he already knows. He says, I have many people in this city to win them to Christ before Jesus comes again. You see, we can't rest on our laurels. What laurels do we have? Our lives are lived for the glory of Christ. We can't rest on the fact that we said a, a prayer 15, 20 years ago or 10 days ago. The Lord has called us to go and to do and to be His servants and those things. Let's pray. Father, we know that Jesus himself has called us to himself and in essence to you. When he said, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and gentle in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And so we've been called to come. And there's no reason, Lord God, for us in this day and time when we have to face a tremendous kind of opposition and many varied oppositions to the gospel. How we need, Lord, today your boldness. How we need your wisdom. How we need your grace. How we need your mercy. And Lord, how we need your encouragement. How we need your light. How we need, Lord, so much your assurance. That you'll never leave us nor forsake us. But Lord, your word is true. So we can believe that. So Lord, bring us out of that rut in our life today. Bring us out of those ruts and even, Lord, cleanse us from the rot that has kept us, Lord, from, from that precious fellowship with you. Cleanse it, Lord. Make us new 
and renewed with a fresh vision of Christ, a fresh vision of the cross, a fresh vision of heaven, a fresh vision of salvation for others. And a reminder of that salvation for ourselves that we now sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And because of this, we can stand and we can walk. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your grace. And I pray for every heart that needs to to pray to you and say, Lord, examine me, Lord. You've challenged me today. Now I pray, Lord, change me. Change me this very moment. Honor that prayer right now in the hearts of those who pray it. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Shall we stand? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be so gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. I just love that phrase. You know what it means? It just, it just means, that may the Lord just smile on you. Don't you just want the smile of God on your life this morning? You know, too many people think that all that God ever does is frown. Oh, oh Lord, oh Lord. God, he, he loves you so much. He wants to smile on you. Let him smile on you. And just keep doing those things and let that smile just get brighter and whiter just for you. And if you need prayer, maybe you want to get out of that rut and you know you're in it, take a moment, have someone pray with you because they know what you're going through because we've all been there. Maybe today you want to ask Jesus just to change your heart. Maybe that's what's necessary right now. Maybe you've never prayed to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Well, you have to take a step. It's not that that step saves you, but it confirms what Jesus already knows. I have many people in this room. You may be the newest one. Don't let that opportunity go by. Receive Jesus. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. Love each other as you leave this place today. That means you got to say hi to somebody or, you know, look at them, pat them on the back or something. Shake their hand. Show them the love of Jesus. God bless you. Let's sing.